Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general, King Khalid Muhammad. We gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, bullshit, I don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. This evening on The Rock Newman Show, I sit down with Morgan State University professor, activist, and author, 
Dr. Raymond Winbush. Dr. Winbush discusses how he's blazed an impactful professional trail despite growing up in a family ailed by financial struggles and racial discrimination. He'll also break down how racial, economic, legal, and social divides have shaped the black experience in America. That's coming up right now on The Rock Newman Show. Welcome to The Rock Newman Show from the campus of historic Howard University, located in the nation's capital. I'm Rock Newman, and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. Dr. Raymond Winbush is an African-American scholar, educator, activist, and author. His writings have been influential in highlighting social relationships in the black community, along with racial and criminal injustice in America. Dr. Winbush joins me now to discuss how he overcame impoverished conditions to become a professional pioneer. And he'll also break down how systematic racial, social, and legal injustices have impacted black America. Dr. Winbush, welcome to the Rock Newman Show. Good to see you, Brother Rock. Thank you so much for being here. <sighs> Talking about being able to start in a hundred different places. Yeah. I want to really go to your beginnings yeah. because it's a storied history about an impoverished child sort of making it out of a maze, yeah. uh, not becoming a statistic, and we want to talk about that journey. But before yeah. we go there, you did something recently where you posted a photo on Facebook. Mm -hmm. of Muammar Gaddafi. Oh, yeah. And it talked about the various things that as the leader of Libya, mm -hmm. he had done for the people. And if one reads that list of accomplishments, one finds that the Libyan people's standard of living highest in Africa was the highest in Africa and so dramatically higher than it is today oh, yeah. after American and Western intervention. I would like to have you to talk to us about American imperialism, intervention in Libya, in Kuwait, in Iraq. I'd like you to give us some perspective, your perspective on that. Well, let's start with what former President Obama said. Uh, he said the biggest mistake of his presidency in terms of foreign affairs was the invasion of Libya. Uh, Libya was very stable. Uh, it had an incredibly vibrant economy, an unemployment rate that was less than 1%. Uh, some of the things that I listed, you know, if you were, uh, you got subsidies for your houses, free health care, free higher education everything. So I asked the question, why would then the people of Libya want to give all of that up? So the answer is the United States of America. 
there's been a systematic attempt over the past, ever since what we call now the Arab Spring, yeah. to destabilize the so-called Middle East in a variety of ways. Libya, if you look at it right before that, Gaddafi had said that he was going to try to get uh, the African economy when he was president of the AU he was going to get the African economy off of the dollar so that it would be a common currency, similar to what's happened in Europe with the euro. That's right before he was deposed. I think the entire Arab Spring was a like a joint effort between the United States CIA, uh, the Israeli Mossad, uh, British MI5, all of those groups to say, let's destabilize this entire area. And part of that, and I say this with a lot of research behind it, part of that was to strengthen Israel in the Middle East. There's a much more tangled history to this than we might imagine, and it goes way back. Uh, Israel technically is safer today than it was five years ago even. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is, you know, comes to play with that. Um, well, let me tell you, that is, um, that's a rather explosive. Yeah, it is. That's a rather explosive mm -hmm. accusation, that, a, a charge. Mm -hmm. for, and for the sake of full disclosure, I happen to have been in Libya oh. when the AU met, mm. when Gaddafi gave a speech mm -hmm. about tying the uh, getting away from the dollar. That's right. Tying the currency That's right. of all of Africa to its mineral resources. That's right. That's right. When I had these earphones in my ear and I heard that speech, my first reaction was, I don't know if you'll be able to survive making this speech. Not so long thereafter was the invasion and then he was being taken out. Now, it was no genius on my part. No, but you had it right. You had that exactly right. Um, you kept hearing the United States talk about Gaddafi being a dictator, killing his own people, as if the United States doesn't. And as you said, I would have said the same thing had I been at that same meeting. You, what you find is that the worst imaginable thing to Europe is a united Africa. Uh, and Krumah said it back in the 50s. It, it was, it's something that is dreaded because so much is extracted out of Africa, not just minerals and how we get these cell phones working and gold and mahogany, but the idea of saying this is a continent that we can continue to exploit even after the fall of colonialism. And Gaddafi had the vision to say, we can get past this. And he was putting his money where his mouth was by donating. I forget how much money it was, but donating money to start a common currency mm. in uh, Africa that would break some of these. I mean, you go to Ghana, they're using the pound. You go to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, they're using the, the French state. I forget what the name of it. Mm. You know, all of these currencies. If you had a common currency, it would start uniting Africa uh, economically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you agree with Obama that one of his wor one of his oh, worst. Oh, I think it was the worst. Mm -hmm. And he listened to a sister by the name, not a sister, but Hillary Clinton, because he really had, was hesitant about doing it. Yeah. And we kept hearing it, the rebels are going. Who were the rebels? What we now call ISIS, because ISIS was born 
out of that whole conflict. Mm -hmm. And, so, okay, because you study this and you have such an incredible reputation of being very erudite in terms of being able to uh, identify and explain motives, mm -hmm. I want to ask you, you say he listened to Hillary Clinton. He did. Why would a Hillary Clinton been so adamant about advising him as Secretary of State to invade Libya? Well, first of all, you know, look, I mean, and I know this is a touchy subject for a lot of folks, but Hillary is a war hawk. I mean, she has a history of wanting to invade nations. Uh, the incursion of the United States through AFRICOM during the Obama presidency just increased geometrically. If uh, my memory serves me correctly, we are now in 24 nations in Africa. It has become a proxy nation for staging a variety of things. Hillary knew that, and she wanted to further destabilize the, uh, Libya and Iran and Iraq were the three strongest nations in the so-called Middle East, besides Israel. Mm -hmm. the strong, all t Two of those nations have fallen. Mm -hmm. uh, Libya and Iraq. Iran, as you know, there's a reversal of policy that's being cooked right now between the Secretary of State, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and I don't mean that ill-advised, not being sarcastic, and the Trump administration to destabilize Iran, to roll back all the stuff that was uh, made under the peace accords, under a nuclear peace accord under Obama. I think Hillary was ambitious. She wanted to seem tough. Mm -hmm. uh, the Israeli lobby had a lot to do with that. And she advised Obama to do that, and he said it was his mistake, biggest mistake. Mm -hmm. um, you just mentioned uh, 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 Libya and Iran um, and, and, and Israel. And I, I, I cannot get past this without taking this shot. Okay. Um, uh, the gentleman who occupies the White House. 45. 45. Named after the gun. <laughs> currently <clears throat> sat yesterday with Israeli officials. And he explained that his secretary Tillerson was doing well sitting in Israel. He told a group of people, we just returned from the Middle East. Did you see that? I did. And, and I, I thought for a moment I was having a senior moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I said, return from the Middle East. He's in the Middle East. Did you see the guy from Israel? Yeah. Like, he, he's just like, oh, no. It's like the Andrew Jackson statement a couple of weeks ago that, you know, Andrew Jackson. Uh, there would have been no Civil War. He was dead 16 years prior to that. I mean. You know, I was on a show recently, and somebody said, well, you know, Trump is just stupid. And you don't want to say that about the President of the United States, but it's true. I mean, he does not read. And, and I think not, and I guess as somebody who's been around academics all my life, I think reading is fundamental. Mm -hmm. But this is a guy that's in the moment mm -hmm. about everything from foreign policy to whatever, mm -hmm. that he's in the moment. And uh, there was a news article in the New York Times uh, editorial called The World Governed by a Child. Yeah. And Trump, as a psychologist myself, Trump acts like a child. Uh, theory of moral development by Kohlberg that talks about the third stage 
of moral development where you're all about yourself. Children mm-hmm. are very egocentric. Sure, sure. And so is he. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've become, you know, such a highly respected scholar. You're a professor at uh, Morgan, uh, Morgan State University. As a child, you would not have been pointed to as one who might climb to those heights. Let's go back, because part of what I attempt to do here, part of what I imagine, is that I, we have viewers out there that have children mm-hmm. that are sitting and watching this show with them. And part of what I always want to try to do is not just to introduce them to Dr. Ray Winbush, now Mm -hmm. professor, highly esteemed scholar at Morgan State University, but also to let them know the backstory. So let's go back. Whoa. Well, look, you know, some people say they were raised in the hood and they really weren't. Yeah. I was. Uh-huh. Um, there was no doubt. You was raised in the no doubt about hood. No doubt about <laughs> hood. Uh, I was born in Cleveland. Uh, I'm in, in Pittsburgh, rather. But my parents were waiting to have me so that they could move to Cleveland. Uh-huh. The reason why was because my father was white balled in the steel industry. He was an organizer was uh, and was trying to organize late 1940s. <laughs> Uh, black steel workers who were getting, you know, inequitable pay from the steel mills. They had the most dangerous job. <laughs> and so he was white-balled. He couldn't find a job. Yeah. Uh, Why do you use the term white-ball instead of black-ball? Because that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, black-ball, you know, everything black. Blackmail, I mean, we know what Muhammad Ali said about that. Mm-hmm. And I use the term white-ball okay. because I think it as it relates mm-hmm. to black people, because mm-hmm. much of this stuff is racial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and, lo- and in large part, his destiny was held in the hands of white folks. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And so he moved, he went to Cleveland. I was born in March of 48, and three months later we were in Cleveland. They were literally waiting for me to drop. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know Pittsburgh a little. Mm-hmm. I still have a bunch of relatives there, go there all the time. When we went to Cleveland, we became the poster child for eviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, and this is no exaggeration, coming home from school with my brother who was a year younger than me, coming home from school hoping that when we turned the corner or wherever we were that our stuff was not out on the street. Oh, oh, uh, we got evicted three times mm-hmm. before I reached the age of eight because mm-hmm. my father couldn't pay the rent. There were five of us, mm-hmm. uh, three boys and two girls. Mm-hmm. and. We were poor. I mean, we were extremely poor. Ray, let me ask you, man, because you just make a, you, you just give me a very vivid mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. You're turning the corner, mm-hmm. maybe almost peeping. That's right. That's a hoping, good word. Hoping, and it's called set out. I mean, That's right. We That's know right. we, we know, know the term. We, we know right. the term set out. Right. Hoping that your stuff is not set out because right. the rent's not paid. Can you identify for us the feeling that went with that? It was a feeling of despair. It was a, def- a feeling at that young age of embarrassment because we knew. I remember once we got evicted on off of the street called Longfellow down on 55th in that area. When I came home, it was raining that day, yeah. and all of our furniture was out there. It was raining on it, yeah. and my mother had tried to throw some plastic over it yeah. to just keep it dry. We yeah. were wondering where we were going to go. We stayed in a hotel for like two or three nights. I don't know what happened to the furniture, and yeah. we moved yeah. again. Uh, we were very poor. My father, you know, my mother didn't work. Mm-hmm. My father was had a job but had to support five children, yeah. and 
back in the 50s, I mean, that was like hard to do on one salary yeah. and not a good salary. Yeah. So he took a second job, a mm. place called Ohio Flotco Company. Mm. So he was working at E.F. Hauserman, working at nights there. We saw him sometimes on the weekends late at night. Yeah. But he was trying to make ends meet as best as he could. Yeah. I can remember when we saw the furniture, we would, you know, my Ron, my brother, he would say things like, you know, this happened again. Yeah. It happened roughly about once every 12 to 13 months for three years in a yeah. row. Yeah. Yeah. And your brother is older, younger? He's younger, one year younger than mm-hmm. me, Ron. Mm-hmm. Play, he uh, deceased, played basketball for Cleveland State, Calvin mm-hmm. Murphy, in fact, mm-hmm. and um, was a social worker, ran the largest drug abuse uh, treatment center in the Midwest, in fact, mm-hmm. C-AAA in Cleveland. He stayed in Cleveland his whole life, yeah. literally. Yeah. I moved around, yeah. you know, primarily to go to school. So tell us about the time. I mean, so 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 now this is when you're eight, yeah. nine, right. ten years old. That's right. You started to have, have some movement that took you towards academia. Well, I know now because I'm a psychologist that I was given the Stanford Binet intelligence test in the fourth grade. I I didn't know what it was then. Yeah. It was a little test, and they said we want to find out. Now this is a self serving comment, but you know, I don't mean it to be, but found out that I had a very high IQ. Mm-hmm. And my parents had the choice of either advancing me two grades or mm-hmm. sending me to this, I guess now we would call it a magnet school or mm-hmm. something like that. They chose to keep me in my same age and send me to the magnet school. Mm-hmm. So in the fifth grade, I entered this elementary school called Boulevard. I started taking French, mm-hmm. uh, took algebra a couple of weeks later, right. uh, a couple of years later went straight through to high school. Then mm-hmm. I became a goof-off. Mm-hmm. Uh, D's and F's in what we call, what they call now middle school. Right. And at high school, I was just nothing but a goof-off. Mm-hmm. F, I barely got out of high school. Mm-hmm. We had the highest, uh, biggest graduating class in the history of uh state of Ohio. There were 600 students in the class. I graduated something like 490th. Mm-hmm. So I was way way down. Mm-hmm. Some of my colleagues now, uh, Sharon Draper, she's a very famous uh, children's book writer right now, and she said, Ray, if somebody told you you would have turned out the way you were right now, I was, I was nothing but a goof off. And I'm not just saying that. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. bad grades, mm-hmm. playing hooky. My parents have me say, you need to stay in school. So I squeaked out of high school, mm-hmm. and then I went to college. Well, look, one of the reasons why I fought so hard yeah. To get you as a guest, <laughs> because I'm well aware of your reputation in history for refusing to talk about yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't like doing. Yeah, I know, but we're gonna suspend that. <laughs> we, we're gonna suspend that for this next half hour okay. or so here. So, so you, so, so you, so you got into, you got into college. Mm-hmm. At what point did you flip the switch? You know, I think I flipped the switch. There were two things real quick. My brother, my oldest brother, Harold Jr., um, you know, went to prison mm-hmm. for a manslaughter. Mm-hmm. He killed a white man who had called him nigger mm-hmm. and beat him to death. Mm-hmm. And he went to prison for five years. That shook me up. It shook my brother up as well. Mm-hmm. Our family, it, it was a big story in Cleveland. And we were ridiculed. I became more introverted. Mm-hmm to myself because of some of the so-called friends I had said, yeah. you better watch out for Ray. He'll beat you up the way his brother killed him. Sure. Oh, you know how kids can be. Of course. 
And so I became more insulated, started studying as a result of that. The other thing that happened was that I, I became a Seventh-day Adventist, believe it or not, and trying to retreat into that Oakwood University where I went to school at was a Seventh-day Adventist school. Mm -hmm. And I had no intention whatsoever of going to college, none whatsoever. Uh, I had planned on moving to Detroit, get a job in a car factory, mm -hmm. which was big money at that sure, time. Sure. People forget that Detroit was like Atlanta is now for black folk. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go to college. I didn't even know the entire process. I applied to Howard, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. They didn't accept me because my high school grades were too low. Sure. And HBCUs, uh, as a gift, admitted me, and specifically Oakwood University. And this is what year? This is about 66. Okay. 66. Okay. Okay. Let, let, let me ask you before we, 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 mm -hmm. we go. <clears throat> any, rem any memories of a numbers runner? in oh my Cleveland God. during that time Scatter? by the name of Donald King? Oh, <laughs> Look, Scatter and Donald King, Don King was on 150 Euclid. Mm -hmm. And see, I knew him as a kid because he was had a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, there was also, that was with 150 Euclid was kind of the center mm -hmm. of black Cleveland. Yeah. In fact, the, the my father always used to tell us we passed through 105th and Euclid. That was the first traffic light mm -hmm. by Garrett Morgan, who was from Ohio, mm -hmm. in the world at that corner. He always told us. And Don King was there, this was before he started promoting yeah. fights. Yes, way yes, before. Yes, he yes. was a gangster. Uh -huh. And, um, I mean, people were afraid of him. Yeah. They were very afraid yeah. of him. And yeah. as you know, he, he killed a guy. Yes. And yes. we knew him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was one of the guys that ran the neighborhood particularly the numbers on the east side of Cleveland, mm -hmm. where I live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I knew him. I got, snow, I got snowed in at Don's house in Florida. And Are you kidding? In, in Boca Raton in 1996. Is that he, right? He, he, he and his wife, and they told stories. Man, that was they, sold, they sold stories about their Cleveland days. Winston, what was his name? Winston Willis. I can't, but 150, it was bought up by Winston. I can't think of his first, but... He ran pornography yeah. stuff yeah. up, and, and yeah. Don him and this guy named Scatter. Mm -hmm. He ran him and Don were kind of competing, but they didn't. You know, it was okay. Scatter mm -hmm. one while actually wound up getting shotgun. Mm -hmm. Boy, I hadn't thought about that in a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, but no, yeah, yeah. everybody so, knew Don. So, so you didn't have any much intention to go to. You, you nah. goofed off in uh, uh, goofed off in high school. Not much intention to go to college, but you ended up at Oakwood. University. Very conservative, very little reactionary. Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah, Huntsville, Alabama. That's correct. That's right. And so you go to Huntsville, and you don't necessarily think that someone who becomes a black activist and scholar would come out of would, Oakwood. Would get that? I would come out of Oakwood. Well, it, 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 some of sometimes I think a lot of things in life are timing rock. You know, I came down there at the height of the civil rights movement in 66. Mm -hmm. Birmingham had just gone down. Mm -hmm. I think also, my parents were dirt poor. I remember my father, when we went out, when I went off the car, he gave me a check for $500. He said, this is all I got. Mm. And I knew that that wasn't going to get me through college. So my second and third year of college, sophomore and junior year, I worked from 3 to 11. I, worked, I went to the classes, 8, 9, 10, 11, 
ate lunch at 12, laid down for an hour, and then from 3 to 11, I worked at Huntsville Hospital as an orderly. Mm -hmm. And I did that for two years. I also felt, I knew my parents couldn't get me through college, so I said, I'm going to start making good grades. Mm -hmm. And I I guess I regained the initiative I had had in uh, elementary and part of middle school, and I started making good grades. Mm -hmm. So I got scholarships in my sophomore year to Harvard and my junior year to Yale. And I studied there, and I kind of got all of my direction at Oakwood. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I had finished, I graduated cum laude there. I got a full-ride fellowship to the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the rest, I guess, partially is history. So you end up going to, into Boston, Harvard, for example. You said Harvard and Yale. And Yale. You you started on both campuses. Right, right. But I I just want to focus on on, on Boston in one second, because this must have been in 68, 69 area. That's right. uh, Around the time of the whole busing Busing issue. Busing it was bad. And Boston was Alabama. It, it, the only part of Boston that wasn't Alabama was Cambridge where MIT and Harvard were. But if you go, went to Saudi, I remember one night a group of us that summer I was up there, summer of 68, mm-hmm. just a couple of months after Dr. King was assassinated and Robert F. Kennedy. And it was you could drive through what we call Saudi. Mm-hmm. And it was white Irish. And they... You know, in what you doing up in here? You yeah. better get out of here and all of that. Mm-hmm. So we kind of stayed around Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Summer '69, when I was at Yale, a group of uh, kids said, "Look, we're, uh, I was studying. That was the same summer that you know, man landed on the moon." Yeah. And they said, "We're going up to New York for a concert." I said, "Man, I got to study." I said, "Where's the place at?" And they uh, told us that it was uh, what's the big rock festival that was up there. Oh, Woodstock? Woodstock. Uh-huh. I didn't go. Uh-huh. But see, Woodstock, I said, I ain't never heard of the place. So yeah. I skipped Woodstock and studied over uh, night. So that was those two summers. But they turned me around. Uh-huh. They did. And so then you go to the University of Chicago. Go to the University of Chicago. I had gone to Chicago during the uh, Democratic Convention in 68 mm. when there was, you know, all of those riots, but left there because we knew it was going to jump off. Right. So then I went to University of Chicago and started studying. Mm-hmm. So you had a, you, you, you had this internal radar. I, I'm, 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 I listen. Yeah. yeah. And I hear you say you left because you knew something was going. You knew it was going to jump off. The second day we saw the police, and they were they were ready to get anybody. That's when Mayor Daly, yeah, Richard, Daly, Richard Daly, yeah, when he was mayor of that town, and mm-hmm. he was not playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this was shortly about three months after uh, Dr. King was assassinated, and the cities in the United States, as you know, you remember that stuff. They were still simmering yeah. that whole yeah. summer, yeah, yeah. and then the convention occurred. Democratic National Convention occurred. It was bad. Now, did you were you in the draft? No, mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you what I did. I got a high number in the draft, and I in Huntsville mm-hmm. moved to Cleveland, uh, moved to. Um, uh, Chicago, mm-hmm. and I was—I don't want to say dodged the draft, yeah. but I tried to get out. And the people that helped me get out of the draft was the Quakers. I was determined I wasn't going to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and they helped me get out of the. Uh, they, they asked me if was I allergic to anything. I told them bee stings, which I was. Yeah, that's how I got out of the yeah. draft. So, and I'm not embarrassed about saying uh, that either. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. So you, um, so at that time, a consciousness was developing. It was, and at that time, Cleveland, where I was raised, and Chicago, where I studied, 
was kind of the center of the black nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, Minister Farrakhan was uh, there. Elijah Muhammad was there, mm -hmm. still alive at that time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Haki Madhubuti, mm -hmm. uh, the you know earlier named Don King, mm -hmm. uh, Don King, Don Lee. So all of those people were there, and that, that's where I got my Francis, Dr. Francis Cress Wellsing, whom mm. I'm getting ready to edit a book about. Uh, she was there. So that was kind of my political education, which has started during the, you know, this, between 66 and on up. And I read a lot, too. Yeah. I read Black Boy, everybody read Autobiography of Malcolm X. And so by the time I got to Chicago, I was politically educated. Were you... In Chicago, when they broke in, when they busted in the door and killed the Black Panther, I came there six months later. Mark Clark and mm -hmm. Fred Hampton. Six, I, they, that happened in December of sixty. I'm sorry, December of sixty nine, mm -hmm. and I got there in July of seventy. It was still fresh. In fact, you could take a tour at that time because the Panthers let you see where they had killed him. Mm -hmm. So I knew early on that that had been a political assassination. Edward Hanran, who was the uh, state's attorney at the time, had orchestrated that with the FBI and a black informant to have those two killed. Had Fred Hampton lived, he would have united much of what was going on. I, I, I don't want to go past this yeah. without maybe even you repeating what you just said as an explanation mm -hmm. for our audience here, because I think it's a relevant occurrence. Mm -hmm in the civil rights movement mm -hmm. where it was uh where 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 the power structure worked overtime oh, yeah. to to demean to denigrate and to destroy the black panther movement oh, they did. a movement which was playing its role in trying to liberate black folks and uplift black folks no and and there's a lot to be talked about. There's a whole two or three shows to be done on that. But I'd like to zero back in on the United States government's role in that massacre. Well, it had started before that. That was the, what we call the COINTELPRO era, as you know, uh, counterintelligence program by the FBI. And as you know, all of the organizations were infiltrated. People forget that when Malcolm was assassinated in 65 that the man who breathed in his mouth to give him artificial respiration while he was on the stage was working as a police undercover to, you know, follow Malcolm. All of the movement was, uh, you know, infiltrated at that time. And what in Chicago, there was kind of this unholy alliance between the federal government through the FBI the local police department, and unfortunately some informants in the uh, Black Panther Party who were working for the government. And, and I think that that still exists in a lesser form, but in terms of numbers, but in an accelerated form because of social media, that they can, they being the government, can track the lives of black folk even better, especially outspoken black folk, because I know what has happened to me more, you know, even more recently, you mm -hmm. know. Well, I, I was just about to ask you, because you matter-of-factly point the finger. I do. Uh, um, and I cannot imagine that achieving the status that you have achieved, and I'm going to say fearlessly, pointing the finger as you have done, 
I can't imagine there hasn't been some some blowback. Well, you know, it's like when I wrote the, my first book, The Warrior Method, a program for rearing healthy black boys. Um, you know, we were called the an endangered species. And see, a species doesn't just get up one morning and say, I'm endangered. Somebody's endangering them. So I pointed the finger at the system of white supremacy racism as the culprit. Well, there's certain places I go right now. For example, I always get stopped in London. I've been asked and pulled out of line as I'm going through customs, do you have any guns on you? I mean, that blatant. Mm-hmm. Um, I went. I wrote to get my FBI file after mm-hmm. I wrote Should America Pay, edited Should America Pay, uh, which is a book about reparations. And my FBI file, I thought it was going to be maybe five or six, seven pages or something like that. It was 77 pages. It took me six months to get it, and I only asked for a piece of it. Um, I was giving a, a book uh, reading When Should America Pay came out in uh, Memphis, saw this little white guy in the back. The next night I was in Knoxville, which is the opposite side of the state, and the same white guy was there when I was signing books. I saw him again, ran to him, and I said, who are you? I saw you in Memphis last night. And he told me he was with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He said, we thought you needed protection. Well, I didn't need protection. And and he was following me. And he said, and part of what was in my FBI file actually said, uh, he is able to convince audience about the importance of pushing for reparations. That was in my file. So the government is still here. You know, it's not being paranoid. I mean, like James Baldwin said, by virtue of being black in America, you're going to have paranoia. 1984 still here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In spades. Mm -hmm. Um, You just mentioned James Baldwin's name. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not your Negro. Oh yeah, it's out. which is not the real what he actually said. We know what he said. Though. Go well, ahead. this is the platform where we can talk about what he really said. He said, "I am not your nigger." I mean, look, Baldwin. If there was a prophet in the black community between like 1950 to the time of his death, it was James Baldwin. Uh, Baldwin said what no one. I, I mean, except maybe Malcolm, a couple of the Panthers would say, but not only did he say it, he wrote about it, and he mm-hmm. wrote extensively about it. Mm-hmm. I tell my students at uh, Morgan State, if you haven't read The Fire Next Time, you really haven't read anything about black America. You can read autobiography, but The Fire Next Time just points you know, where the problem was. So Baldwin was a prophet, and I'm glad this film is out. I'm glad it's staying out and people mm-hmm. are looking at it mm-hmm. as well because it'll give you a glimpse into a mind that just understood everything about racism and white supremacy. And before we leave Baldwin, I, I want to say to my audience out mm-hmm. there that if you got that little young kid there with you, mm-hmm. pull up a video of James Baldwin, the prophet that you're talking about, yeah. debating William Buckley oh my God. at Oxford. Yeah. Oh my! That's probably the, one of the greatest debates I've ever seen in my life. And um, Baldwin, I really, I probably the two people I quote most on, in my social media probably Baldwin and Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. because they just have a laser had and have a laser like vision of the state of African people all over the world and the state of white people and all over the world. 
And that debate between Buckley and Baldwin is classic. Yeah. Um, when you talk about African people all over the world, not very far leap yeah. to think about Pan-Africanism. That's right. Think about Pan-Africanism, you don't get very far without thinking about a brother that came through this campus right here. Kwame Toure. Named Stokely Carmichael, who became Kwame, Kwame Toure. Yeah. Your reflections on I mean, just, you know, you're naming the greats, you know, and uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, uh articulated the anger that was in African America, but also articulated towards the latter part of his life, the anger and what African people must do. Um, it's like John Henry Clark said, black folk are ta always talk about where we were dropped off on the slave ship. Uh, we were dropped off in Jamaica, South Carolina, South America, and Brazil, New all Orleans. through the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And he said, instead of us always talking about our differences about where the ship dropped us off, we ought to talk about where the ship picked us up. And see, I think that's what Kwame Ture did. Mm -hmm. He talked about and, and lived the life. I met him one time in Ghana sat down with him for about three hours and just he's one of those brothers you just listen to mm -hmm. and you got so much and he had a vision of a pan-african world that we have struggled to get since sylvester williams in the 1900s did du yeah. bois and others when i taught at fisk i mean how du bois envisioned this and kwame Turi was trying to put that in action and i still think we are still in that process of you know establishing a true pan-africanism throughout the world mm -hmm. he carried that to his dying he did breath he did yeah. and and i always tell my students too read his last letter to the world in which as you know he died of prostate cancer and he talks and even in, in that last letter he points to fame he said the cia had developed ways of giving black men uh, prostate cancer, uh, and and he was always just constantly being a political person, and I admire that in him. He has some flaws as all of us do, sure, sure. of course, but he was he stayed true to the game, stayed true to the game. I want to I, I want to talk to you about your book, and and the structure, and the advice for developing strong black men. Yeah. Just just before sure. that, I just recently <coughs> read comments from Malcolm where he talked about, from, Malcolm X talked about violence. Yeah, he did. And he held the mirror up to white America. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me explain to you what violence is. Violence is making up, having us to look at a tree mm -hmm. and hate that tree so that we don't ever try to find its roots. That's right. And that's what you're talking, that's what you did to us as a as a people. Exactly. And as we talk about the whole Pan-African concept, that concept that, that Stokely had, mm -hmm. which I mean, literally I called him in, in a very faint voice, he would answer the phone, mm -hmm. ready for that's right. He's That's still right. ready, ready right. for the revolution. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
Let's talk about the, the, your book. Well, I got to say something about, you, about Malcolm. I think the term self-defense, and you know, mentioned what Malcolm said, yeah. it's funny how the term self-defense was a common strategy to be discussed during the 60s, Deacons of Defense, the Republic of New Africa, uh, Black Panther Party, all of these groups. And somehow we've now taken it off the table. I think it's a great thing that we've seen gun sales since the election of 45 in the black community soar. Now, some people say, oh, my God, he's advocating violence. Oh, yeah. No. I'm, I'm waiting for the FBI to come to this door right now to pick you up. <laughs> well, but, but see, what it is, we're talking about self-defense. We're yeah. not talking about what happened to the young brother at Bowie State a week or so ago or anything else like this. Pa yeah, this yeah. past weekend. We're talking about self-defense and how we defend our community. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, I named my book The Warrior Method, a mm -hmm. program for rearing healthy black boys. Yeah. And the reason why I named it because, again, warriors don't just go out and start shooting and killing people. They mm -hmm. defend their communities. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest expression of Pan-Africanism for black men and black women is to defend their communities, not only with a gun, but with knowledge, with uh, camaraderie, pulling people together to talk to them, to teach them. I think defense is a broader term than we make it. So what I do in the book is simply tell you how to rear black boys in ways that will help <coughs> them to be soldiers, to guard, protect, and teach our communities. It's as simple and as you that. wrote that book when? Oh, my God, 2002. I'm getting ready to do a revision mm -hmm. of it now. Mm -hmm. so, so 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Now, with the proliferation of police killings of young, of black men, period. Yeah. Uh, young, and black women. Yeah, yes. Yes. Over the last three or four years that spawned the Black Lives Matter movement, would you modify anything in your book for these times? I would probably be, and and then the revision I'm going to be doing this, I would probably be more structured in terms of talking about the teaching of firearms for young black men. Black men already use firearms, as we can witness in places like Chicago or southeast D.C. or where I live in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But... The gun should be for protection, and I think that energy that young black males have is being diverted in negative directions. Mm -hmm. I think we need to train our young people, as does the white community with guns, to train their young boys and young girls to use firearms. So I would change that in the book. Uh, in light of the police department, I think the Panthers had a model. They followed police. And I think that we, and it's interesting now that, and, and see, Rock, I, I'm going to tell you something. I don't think, and I, I might be wrong, I think police violence against black folk has always existed. Mm -hmm. What has changed is social media. So, Everybody got yeah, a camera yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they can tape this stuff, the old term tape, record this stuff, mm -hmm. and they can play this stuff and post it so that millions of people see it. Mm -hmm. I think the police have always been violent towards black folk in this country. Mm -hmm. When I ask that question, I was wondering if you might say something might have gone the route of speaking to how to teach young black boys mm -hmm. 
how to survive in an encounter with the police. Now, yeah. before, you, be, 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 yeah. before you respond, that's a, and you as a psychologist know this much better than me, but that is a very, very double-edged sword. It is. Where when you are talking to a kid about how to come home, mm-hmm. how to live, that's real important. Mm-hmm. That's real important. Handle this encounter in a way mm-hmm. where you're going to allow yourself to come home. But part of what you're doing when you do that is suggesting to him that he subjugate his manhood. Well, no, look, you are on the same page. I'm going to be honest with you. I get kind of tired when, you know, some people call Randall Kennedy calls it respectability politics, saying you've got 10 things to do when you meet the police. That always comes out after one issue. Look, Philando Castile up in Minnesota did everything. Right. He complied, if right. you please. Right. The brother uh, in Oklahoma that just, his killer, white woman the lady. Kid, yeah. Yeah, killer, yeah. and I'm bl- uh, blanking on the brother's name, but he did everything correct. Look, I have been almost killed by the police twice. Once while I was a student at University of Chicago, um, and I wasn't doing anything. So this idea that if you comply, and I've heard black people, you know, expressing these respectability policies, if they would only obey the police, there's too many instances where black folk have obeyed the police and they still have gotten killed. What what I advise is to tell the young man, you need to be aware, part of the warrior method say, you need to be aware at all times how racism, white uh, supremacy can impact you in this situation at the grocery store, at school. It, it can happen anytime. When I walk out of Howard University, I don't just say, wow, I'm in a place that I can relax. To a degree, yes, as opposed to, let's say, University of Maryland. But I'm always aware and have my radar up that something could happen if I'm driving home to Baltimore or any place else. So we have to teach our children to be aware of what can happen. But this stuff about... If the police pull you over, there was a video a couple of weeks ago. These young men, they weren't doing anything. They were 12 years old, and the cop had the gun. They were showing it, how he was pointing the gun, telling them to get on the ground. The kids were crying and everything. Those kids were too young to be doing anything, and they were just it was just intimidation. And I think we also have to understand how racism impacts the lives of our young people, and uh, boys and girls. And how that stuff is played out in the sick minds of white supremacists as well. I never get tired of asking my guests who I think have a pers- a real perspective um, and a un- it sit in a unique vantage point to speak of Dr. Francis Crest Wilson. You're editing a, a book, book. Yeah. about her. Yeah. Wow, what can I say? Francis is probably one of three people in my life, and one of them, and I'm going to collectively talk about my mom and dad, that literally shifted my worldview um, very quickly. Uh, 1981, I was teaching at Vanderbilt, and prior to that, I was teaching at Alabama A&M, and one of my students gave me this little five or six page article. It's called The Crest Theory of Color Confrontation. I put it on my desk, didn't read it for a few days. One night I was teaching a class, and it was about 30 minutes before class, I picked it up and read it. 
I immediately got on the phone. Remember when we used to dial 411? I dialed 411, called Washington, D.C., asked for the number of a Dr. Francis Gross Welsing. She picked up the phone, and I told her, Francis, you don't know who I am. My name is Ray Wimbush, but I just read the Crest Theory of Color Confrontation, and it changed my life. Um, Of all the people that I've invited when I taught at Fisk, when I taught at Vanderbilt, uh, at Morgan State, she has been my most invited guest. You read um, that book and you said it changed your life. It did. What, it did. what, what did it? Because as her teacher, Neely Fuller, says, racism is not just what white people or a white person does. Dylan Roof, the guy that killed uh, people in, yeah, in Charles, mm-hmm. he's a racist. Mm-hmm. But the system of racism is what she talked about. And as a psychologist, and she was a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. Neely Fuller talks about the what mm-hmm. the system is. Mm-hmm. And then what Francis does is talk about why do they do it? Mm-hmm. Why is it that people classified as white don't like people who are darker than them? Um, and she goes through why. The idea that they are a minority but have us calling ourselves minority, mm-hmm. that they are the ones that have more diseases and birth defects when they're born than our children uh, do. So her idea of a system, which is you know directly connected to what her, uh, her teacher, Neely Fuller, said, it intrigued me, and as a psychologist and her being a psychiatrist, it tells me the why. And psychologists, as you know, we're always asking why. Mm-hmm. And she answers the question. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask you something, and I want to um, put a proviso here. Um, I recently got involved in a project mm-hmm. called the Power Talk series, oh, yeah. uh, something that's been going on for several years mm-hmm. now. So, you know, I take no authorship of that whatsoever. I I just got involved. Mm -hmm. Before I got involved, you had agreed to participate in that that Black Talk Forum. Right. What made you agree to that? And what do you hope to accomplish? What do you and others hope to accomplish? It's an event. That's going to be here in Washington D.C. the twenty third, twenty fourth of uh, of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish? Well, you know, again, other than psychology, I read history a lot. During the nineteenth century and even part of the early late eighteenth century, black folk had what was then called colored conventions. Mm-hmm. You know, Negro conventions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that black folk, on a regular basis, or a, a timely basis, get together enough and simply talk about what's going on with them. Yeah. Um, we do it in the barber shop. Mm-hmm. We do it in the beauty shop. We do it on the corner. But our scholars and our activists need to talk to the masses of our people in safe areas where they can share their ideas, feel free to question each other, uh, you know, so when Carl Nelson came up to me and asked me to participate, I said, yeah, because we don't do that enough. Mm-hmm. Um, when I taught at FISC, we had the Race Relations Institute, which was founded in the early 1940s, and we brought everybody uh, to the, you know, sons of Marcus Garvey, daughters of 
yeah. uh, Richard Wright, a whole yeah. lot of people that we bought to talk. Francis Wellesley, uh, James Earl Jones, yeah. Chuck D, Max Roach. We brought everybody together to talk about racism. Mm -hmm. As Francis said, and I totally agree with the most important things for black folk to talk about right now is white supremacy because that is the problem of the world. And if we don't talk about it, it's going to not spell our doom, but it's going to make us harder to liberate our people. You mentioned the name that I was going to bring up come mm -hmm. hell or high water before this interview was over. Mm -hmm. And that, and you, you, you talk about coming together, black yeah. folks coming together. Yeah. We don't do that. And there is a history that tens of thousands of individuals came together right. in a time that was pulled, and they were pulled together by this powerful force of nature named Marcus Garvey. Boy. We've got two and a half minutes <laughs> left. Man, you know, you mentioned the names that are so important to our history. Um, who was it? Uh, I think it was Nkrumah who said that no other book helped him to understand the black uh, struggle on the global basis uh, than the uh, philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey, before fax machines, email, Hello. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, yeah. and all Instagram, organized 11 million black folk in this country around an idea of Pan-Africanism. Yeah. I mean, if he could do that in the late teens and early 20s before J. Edgar Hoover and his gang got to him, what should we be doing now? Yeah. I say during the 20th century that the greatest organizers, the three great organizers, Elijah Muhammad, Mar Martin Luther King, and Marcus Garvey, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in that reverse order. So I think that we got, you have to study Garvey to understand the importance of organizing. Uh, and, and pulling black folk together for a large vision of Pan-Africanism, which Garvey did, and did it the best. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, Elijah Muhammad borrowed from Garvey. Sure, Malcolm, Malcolm's father, as you know, was a Garveyite. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Garvey... The, the minister with the Million Man March. Garvey. Yeah. So, so Garvey influenced... And see... Where's the film about Marcus Garvey? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we need to have a film to mm -hmm. reach the Where's masses the, of people. One of my disappointments in President Obama is that he that he didn't grant that pardon. No, I know. But see, I'm gonna tell you, Rock. I knew he wasn't gonna do it. You know, um, I think it was uh, what's his name? I can't think. But he wrote this article called "What Are the Drums Saying?" I think when you talk to our people, you either talk to them directly and let white people stand behind you and ignore them, or you talk to white people and you let black folks stand behind you. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that Barack did, but Barack tried to stand between, in mm -hmm. the middle of he that. He tried to be in the gap. Right. And, and see, my, my father used to say, Ray, if you're going to be black, be black all the way. Mm -hmm. Real simple mm -hmm. from a 12th grade educated man. Yeah. But it's the truth. Yeah. It's the truth. You know, when you want to learn, folks, you invite the professor. Oh, come on, man. Brother, thank you so much. Man, thank you for, for having some great questions. Blessing us and okay. gracing us thank here you. today. Absolutely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right. Folks, that wraps us for this evening. For more information on this program or any other program produced by WHUT, go to WHUT.org. Goodbye and God bless.
This program was produced by WHUT, Howard University Television, and made possible by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. All right, what's up, world? Welcome back again to our Mix What I Like Live. I'm Jared Ball, happy to be your host. Please, again, go to ourmixwhatilike.org and subscribe there so you don't miss any day that I and my entire collective crew uh, and expanded community do uh, across a variety of media platforms and uh, uh, forms of communication. Uh, so, again, ourmixwhatilike.org there so you don't miss anything that we do. Please do Subscribe here, like, retweet, share, all of that good stuff uh, for this channel. And, and as this conversation goes, please encourage others to join us. And if you see it after the live, please uh, feel free to be in touch with your thoughts as well. Um, normally, we would want to take a few minutes to talk about political prisoners and all of that and, and encourage you to, to involve yourself with that. I uh, want to do that very quickly here, but we want to be respectful and mindful of the time that we have uh, just about a, uh, a little over an hour or so with our next guest. So I want to uh, make sure we privilege all of that. So maybe I'll come back at the end and, and, and we'll talk up some of that uh, with you as well. Please do get in the chat with your comments. Those of you here live, thank you for joining us. And please do uh, feel free to raise your comments. Uh, we'll get to them uh, throughout and as much as possible. Uh, and same thing for those who see this after the fact. We'll try to get to those as well. But joining me for, for, for uh, this conversation about reparations is one of the most preeminent thinkers on the subject, of course. He is uh, Professor Ray Winbush, who is a research, research professor and the director of the Institute for Urban Research uh, at Morgan State University. And as a scholar and activist, he is known for his systems thinking approaches to understanding the impact of racism or white supremacy. Uh, on the global African community. His writings, consultations, and research have been instrumental in understanding developmental stages in black males, public policy, and its connection to compensatory justice, relationships between black males and females, infusion of African studies into school curricula, and the impact of hip-hop culture on the contemporary African landscape. And I would just want to add one thing, as we said of our, one of our previous guests uh, recently, uh, Lynn Washington, I would have to say the same thing for Professor Winbush here, somebody who people would have to understand uh, through working with him off the record and outside of the, the, the public eye and often behind the scenes, how supportive uh, he is to a number of faculty uh, uh, on campuses uh, where he works and elsewhere. Uh, we always have to big that up because it's not a given that people, particularly at the senior levels that he has reached, will be supportive of junior faculty uh, and particularly those who, who take certain positions politically uh, where they work. So I just wanted to take that moment to, to thank uh, Dr. Winbush for his personal support of me and many others as I've seen uh, over the years working with him at Morgan State University. And without further ado, Dr. Winbush, thank you again for joining us and good morning to you. Oh, good, good to see you, Jared, brother Jared. Uh, good to be here. 
So, so uh, always happy to talk to you. And when I was still doing the academics and cars uh, uh, series, we were trying to set that up, uh, and and uh, through my own scheduling, we couldn't get that to happen. So, uh, uh, you know, I guess if there is a fortunate to this COVID moment, a chance to catch up with people, at least you know virtually. Um, so I'm glad to do this with you. And and you know, given your again expertise, which we will talk about over the course of this next hour on the issue of reparations. I wanted to start with this broad question, uh, again, that accepting they are due, uh, not debating whether or not <laughs> reparations are due, accepting that they are due, how do you think they should be handled uh, going forward, especially given the, the moment we're in now? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a debate even among reparations activists. Uh, there's a lot of schools of thought. Uh, probably the most recent one, which I tend to reject, is that has been brought forward by Sandy Darity in his new book. Um, I know Sandy very well, but it's almost like a money only with him. Um, he brings forth and did a study uh, that said that reparations in terms of being owed is something like $6.25 quadrillion. Now, that's a ridiculous uh, figure as far as I'm concerned. And But being on C-SPAN and all these other shows, it kind of trivializes what reparations are all about. Uh, I think the money-only approach is something that is really something that is pushed by the right wing to, to again, trivialize reparations. Um, there's every, you know, I, I think it's like, Jared, the uh, civil rights movement, if you want to make that fairly good comparison that in 1954, you know, after Brown v. Board, of course, that auspiciously was about school desegregation. But spinoffs of that included, you know, open housing, Voting Rights Act, uh, affirmative action, all of that. I think that reparations can take the form of money payments. I do believe that. I think it can take the form of rep repatriation. You know, my brothers and sisters in the Caribbean said, look, give me $100,000 and I'm out of here. You know, I'm going back to Africa. Um, it can take the form, and I'm just thinking of some of the debates we've had among ourselves, uh, you know, about a reparations bank that would be run by a committee and so forth, which is more capitalistic. My colleague Charles Barron, an assemblyman up in uh, New York, and, you know, we've done a lot of work together. He said, look, don't give anybody any money because all you're going to do is pour, pour it back into the very system that created the problem in the first place. So there's a lot of thoughts. I think land is another one. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of my colleagues have talked about that. So it's the debate is still there, but what we all agree on is that they owe us in some form. Could you expand on that that point you raised a little bit about the the uh, if I understood you correctly the conservative nature of of a money only approach? Why would I mean? Because I, I think a lot of people who would hear that might um, at least initially disagree with your, your your assertion. In other words, when black people turn on the TV and they see Sandy Darity or or anyone else saying you owe us, you know, quadrillion, however, what was the, I forgot the number, six quadrillion dollars. Yeah. Yes, you know, six, and they get specific 6.25 quadrillion. I mean, I, I could imagine a lot of people you think you'd start, you know, cheering him and thinking this is, you know, go brother, go. Like, you know, get us that, you know, you know get us that check as, as we, you know, why, 
I mean, why do you say do you disagree uh, uh, or, or uh, consider that to be a conservative? Um... Well, another person that espouses the money only is uh, Robert Johnson, the former CEO of BET. Uh, he had a very, very, or has a very, very simple formula. He says give every man, woman, and black baby. You know, I mean, literally, uh, $350,000 a year cash, uh, uh, tax free. And that, that amounts roughly to about $14 trillion, which is in the neighborhood of where most people think it should be. You mean so, a one time payment of 350000 Right. So if you have a, if you, like you, your wife, two children, you would get what is that three fifty times four? That family would get that, even if that baby is eighteen months old. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you then eliminate issues like affirmative action. Uh, you eliminate people saying, "Well, we want set asides and all of that," as if the money cures everything, and it doesn't. Uh, it's like saying, you know years ago, we're going to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, and then there will be no more discrimination against women, <laughs> you know, or we got Brown v. Board, and there won't be any more racism. So I think that money only approaches, I, I am not opposed at all to giving money for reparations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can cite some examples uh, that have already been done where money was involved. But if that's all it is, I think it gives a more, it's almost like somehow money is going to cure all of the problems and also release the society, specifically the United States, from any other obligations toward African people. And I don't believe that. Almost kind of like saying, you know, Obama got elected, so your political issues are taken care of now, or something like that, you know, yeah. And which Mitch McConnell essentially said when they were talking about reparations. Well, you got Barack Obama, like, wow, you know, I'm supposed to be satisfied now. So th that actually was said by Mitch McConnell. Well, that's actually, you know, uh, well, it's interesting that I, I plan to bring this up, but we might as well do it here as a good segue, you know, because some have argued similar to that, that, well, why should, not, again, I don't want to get, you know, I, I'm accepting that reparations are due, but some have argued that, that, that one reason that they're not is because not only have we been given Obama, but historically we've been given voting rights acts and civil rights acts and affirmative action, and we've been made citizens, and all of these things that are supposedly uh, uh, have, have opened the door to opportunity and, and boundless opportunity. Uh, um, but anyway, so, so, and then, which is also, I've seen led to the debate is, well, when should we count the, the, the total number owed? Should we start from enslavement or should we even just start from Jim Crow? Uh, um, I think we should start from 1441. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going all the way back to when the first Africans were taken out of the continent and put on Madeira Island by the Portuguese. I, I would start at 1441, and I would probably end, you know, yesterday. I mean, <laughs> you know. I, or or what time is it now? <laughs> yeah, 11.10 or something, you know. So, I mean, see, I think that with, you know, I think the society somehow feels that 
you know, I've heard over and over, white people have said to me in presentations on racism, on reparations, they'll say something like, uh, well, didn't we, we sacrificed 600,000 men during the Civil War. Oh, wow. You know, so, wow, you know. Now, then I ask them immediately how many black people died in the Civil War, and they don't know. Uh, you know, as if the, the you know, what they did in the Civil War. So it's like I think white people are always looking for absolutions from the sins of the past. And I think doing that about money only with reparations is another nuanced approach to that. And so I, you know, and also it says, well, if we do that, isn't that enough? And the answer is no. I mean, It'll be enough, you know, like Derrick Bell, you know, the late Derrick Bell said that racism is always going to be here. And everything that you do to expand it, you know, make it grow and everything is another, you know, point at which you've got to do something about it. Now, until we get rid of racism, you know, and you let me know, I mean, my my ridiculous <laughs> colleague Dinesh D'Souza, who wrote a book a few years ago called "The End of Racism," and I bought it because I wanted to know when it ended. Was right. it June eighth? I don't know, nineteen ninety nine or when? Did I don't he think give he a definitive did. stop date for it? Right, I didn't no, he did. Mm-hmm. He just said it was ended because, you know, I mean, we saw that with Obama's election. You know, well. We're post-racial. We, we, no. I mean, those are some of the myths that I think Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about in his books and his writings about that somehow this country is always wanting to escape its responsibility while telling us, black folk and indigenous people, to be responsible and take responsibility. Well, let them take responsibility on certain things. Well, again, that's interesting. You've led me to another point I wanted to raise with you, which is this, this, so, uh, I'm happy, there need not be any, any order to it. Uh, um, you, you know, but Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, uh, in many ways representing a lot of the popular scholarship on, on the issue or, or comment conversation at least on the issue, uh, is a proponent or of reparations. Uh, wrote a very famous defense for the case for reparations. So, what what impact do you think that that people like him or other popular uh, discussants of reparations, even those who say they are proponents of it? So, for instance, in other words, you know, so uh, uh, um, I just said the other day with, with with Adolph Reed that 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 I disagreed with him that I don't think Bernie Sanders was necessarily a net positive in the uh, promotion of socialism, uh, even though he you know is often claimed to have made it more popular a concept i don't believe that is is Coates? you know does he help your your argument and your effort or the effort of those with whom you work on this issue i think everybody helps in a little way in little you know in small ways about reparations i mean uh randall robinson at the turn of this century you know wrote a book the debt that i think in fact my uh book about reparations my first book about reparations the debt uh, was an answer to his question, the debt should America pay? And I made an argument, you know, uh, within the book uh, with other authors about the empirical history of reparation. Well, I think that ta did something that 
I haven't done in my presentation of reparations. Usually I start with the past, you know, 40 acres and the mule, uh, Belinda, Royale, Sutton, and move forward. What Coates did, to his credit, is start now with the mortgage ripoffs that have been occurring for decades in Chicago and move backwards to the Civil War, tracing one family in particular. And by the time you get to reading that article, which I think was the brilliance of it, you say, we had to do something about this. So he started in the present and moved to the past. I usually start in the past and move to the present. And I think that, you know, so I've gotten a lot of calls. Well, you know, uh, from housing, I did something a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago with New, New York Housing Authority because they were saying, well, we've got all this redlining stuff, that historical, what should we do about it? That's probably thanks to code. So I think everybody adds arguments to it. Um, you know, my colleague Wade Nobles out in California, he makes, you know, an argument for the idea of psychological reparations. So people like, uh, you know, Lil Wayne, you know, he just sold the rights to his music for $100 million. But so he doesn't need the money. But I think there may be, and you know, with all due respect to Lil Wayne, he may need psychological reparations. Um, that, and Wayne makes a contribution about that. So I think everybody adds a little to the argument, including Coach. It's not perfect because if you read his article, Coates never at the end of the article says, this is how much it should be. You know, uh, I'm glad Sandy said there should be $6.25 uh, quadrillion. And although that's an absurd figure, it at least shows the magnitude of how much occurred to Africans after they were uh, stolen from the continent. Yeah, I, somebody was raising the question here, what happened to the $17 trillion? And I was saying what happened to it is it became $6.25 quadrillion. I, I, I don't even know what that number is or how many zeros that even looks. I don't even know what that looks like in print. Um, but, but you know, when I, hear, when I hear that argument, and one reason why I think that, that uh, some versions of reparations are more welcomed, and particularly on commercial media spaces like that, is because when people hear that figure, it's understood, particularly in those spaces, that white audiences who hear that are going to think, my God, that is a ridiculous number. We're not paying that. And then it can be easily dismissed. So on the one hand, you get the, the credit for making it seem like you, you're on you know, CNN or whatever, or C-SPAN making the argument. But the hosts and the, 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 product, the directors and the owners of those networks know that, that it's not going to get anywhere. So, uh, um, uh, so, I, so, part of, so that's one part of a reason why I've personally taken to, to, to arguing something slightly differently, which admittedly has been accused of, uh, made me be accused in some spaces of not supporting reparations. So I want to hear your thoughts on this in particular. Sure. So just tactically speaking, uh, any reparative project, particularly one that would transfer wealth, would require a large segment of white Americans to sign off on that. And I just, I just can't see them doing that. I can't see them saying we're going to transfer wealth just to black people. So I said, well, w then why don't we just make the target for redistribution, the, at least before COVID, the $20 trillion gross domestic product of the country, and just say, 
uh, in perpetuity, X percent of that GDP is going to get redistributed to everybody so that we have free health care, free housing, free schools. Everybody has a job. Everybody has job training. Everybody has clean water. I mean, everything, like the roads get paid. Like we told, we just, we, so instead of the 1% getting a lion's share, that 20 trillion, all of us get it. And that way we don't have to have the arguments over, you know, I don't want my, you know, white people saying we didn't own anybody. Why should we pay? And Asians saying, well, we suffer too. And this group saying we suffer too. And then within the diaspora, I mean, you've already touched on it already. There's an international aspect to reparations to your approach, but others are saying, but you know, only black people here should get it. And to the, to the exclusion of any, even the solidarity work with any other group. So I'm saying to just tactically get around all of that, redistribute everything. And then once that is done, Within our own communities, all those other reparative projects can be taken up, spiritual, psychological, et cetera. What do you think of that? What, what is, well, what's wrong with my argument? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I well, this is what's wrong with your argument. No, I mean, it's cool. You know. what, 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 the reason, I actually think that the approach of being more specific to, to the group where the injury occurred is more conservative than your argument, that Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see this society ever getting to a point that is more socialistic, not a la Bernie Sanders, but just saying, why don't we just redistribute wealth? Why don't we have a system that gets rid of the Jeff Bezos and uh, some of these other fat cats and, and let everybody have a, a decent living, a decent education, health care, and so forth. I actually think that uh, black reparations are much easier. And see, the other thing, Jared, is that <laughs> these, legit. I mean, the, <laughs> the other thing is that it's all, it's like nobody, that radical president, Ronald Reagan, gave <laughs> reparations to the Japanese who had been interred during uh, World War II. Um, Native Americans, not all of them, but some of the Lakota, some of the Klamaths of Oregon, they have gotten reparation. And we've seen concomitant raising of health care because of, you know, money. Uh, this dude in the White House was complaining that his, you know, some of his gambling casinos <laughs> collapsed because of, you know, indigenous people who don't have to pay tax on that stuff. Um, I think that there's, again, a lot of ways of doing reparation. One that I should have mentioned, I guess, I mean, there's a school of thought among the reparations activists that said, look, black folk just don't pay taxes for the next 25 years. And when I'm saying no taxes, I'm talking about no income tax, no sales tax, no uh, property tax, no type of tax, no payroll tax. And that's a form of reparations. And I know a lot of people who are very strong on that issue. So I think that my plan or our plan is more feasible uh, than say let's just redistribute wealth all together. No, I just was thinking in terms. You might, maybe you're right. I was just thinking in terms of in the the amount of support needed for that to happen. I was thinking if everybody's getting something, then everybody would be more likely to support it. But maybe you're right. I think that's a legit a legit but response. People, I mean, this is my feeling. You know, I, you know. When I was looking at the Black Lives Matter demonstration for Breonna and George Floyd last summer, mm -hmm. like 
the only time, and correct me if I'm wrong, the only time that white people have ever fought white people on behalf of black people was the American Civil War. And then 12 years after that, the so-called Compromise of 1877, they abandoned us to get Rutherford B. Hayes elected president. I don't, and I've told young people, you know, since last summer, I said, look, don't count on white people to help you with your struggle. I mean, it's like, as I have told, you know, Palestinians, don't count on some kind of alliance with Israel to help you get free. You know, I think, and I think that white people are always going to resist anything that they perceive as somehow taking from them. Um, I don't care what it is. I mean, they did it throughout our history. Uh, you know, John Hope Franklin was my teacher when I was at Chicago doing my degree, and his dad, Buck Franklin, was the lawyer for those who were, you know, killed in the Tulsa massacre that will celebrate their 100th anniversary, or not celebrate or commemorate the 100th anniversary next year. Well, Dr. Franklin used to say, he said, I don't care what it is, whenever black people seemingly are making an advance about anything, you know, white people are going to oppose it. So white opposition to reparations is like, that's part of the struggle. We know that. I, I'm I'm heartened when I see that double the amount of white people now support reparations as opposed to 10 years ago. And much of that support, in quotation marks, came as a result of the demonstrations last summer. Um, but I just never rely on white people to do anything without kicking and screaming uh, to the, you know, to the table. Yeah, I, again, that's that's why I keep thinking if if the argument is particularly the poorer ones, you will benefit too, and you don't have to think of this as being specific help for black people or repair for black people that they would be more likely to do it. But it's the, the the logic of white supremacy is illogical, so it's hard exactly. to track it. So so I don't I don't know, and you 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 may I I I just have to keep thinking about your point. I don't know, um, uh, and that's why in general I just you know support these efforts. But I do want to come back to that point you raised uh, uh, at least a little bit of of the international aspect of this because um, so so. If, if, if the, if, as your approach, and one I would agree with, particularly as a Pan-Africanist, that it go back to 1441 uh, and count everybody, well then, so are you saying that the reparations movement be uh, organized internationally and then collectively uh, uh, um, collect the debt collectively from the West? Or are you saying that each individual African community collectively working go to their particular colonial uh, administrator, for lack of a better word, for, for repair? I, I think both. Uh, mm. I reject the notion that Eidos, the what is it, American descendants of slave, what a terrible name, but I, I reject their notion that we should just think about us. And I, I reject the whole idea. First, let me just say this. The reparation struggle has always been international. It has never been just about my thing and forget about everybody else. I think that like the CARICOM uh, 
community. The Caribbean community is very organized about reparations, but they also help us and we help them. And we've been cooperative in a, a lot of different ways. Uh, I did a workshop with Hillary Beckles in Scotland and was surprised a, a few years ago and was surprised to see several African people in Europe with their own reparation struggle. So we help each other. The idea that Eidos, and I don't want to make this about Eidos, but the idea that somehow we should only think about ourselves in this landmass and not think about our brothers and sisters, you know, throughout the diaspora, to me, is just ridiculous. And other than that, you got to look at where Eidos is coming from. I mean, they they come from, they're funded primarily by, you know, uh, anti-immigration white folks from the far right. You many of whom are Trump supporters and others. So I think they've got another motive that they don't like to uncover about or expose to the public. So I think it's international, and I've always viewed it as international. And not only me, but anybody who's a true Pan-African who sees it as uh, international. Yeah, that's why we do. We we only we only drink soda here. Uh, Solidarity of dispersed Africans. Thanks, right. Dr. Ichile, and uh, please go check the talk we just had with her this morning, folks. If you didn't see it, uh, it was great. Um, <clears throat> uh, and blood, honey, I put it at the bottom. Uh, uh, soda is Solidarity of dispersed Africans. Uh, it's a it's a Dr. Hate special. I can't claim credit for it, but I'm running with it uh, because you know it's it you know backwards never. Um, and I don't want to make it about them either, um, but but they are having an impact. And uh, uh, one of their leaders uh, crashed one of my clubhouse chats the other day, or uh, uh, I shouldn't say crashed was 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 um, what would be the word was was um, uh, wildly supported and encouraged to be welcomed onto the quote unquote stage for for for. Uh, 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 talk I was involved in and misrepresented the whole history. So my my thing my only thing about them, which I think is being addressed here, is that what what is of evidence to me without even getting to the background or who actually supports them, which I think you're right in, in pointing out, is the aggressive attack on the radical traditions that many of us come out of. That when you attack Pan-Africanism and when you attack uh, radical nationalism or all nationalism, when you attack the entire African-centered world, when you entire, attack the entire black uh, socialist Marxist world, I mean, they attack everybody. And, and you know, I'm saying when, if, if you're going to wipe out every radical tradition in the African world that has supported Africans in this country, uh, that makes me suspicious of your of, of your motives. Uh, uh, rather than working with people that have been doing it for for so long and buttressing their efforts, trying to replace or supplant them, makes me you know is is one reason why you know. So anyway, but but uh, uh, this again, this question of, of the international approach, um, uh, uh, similar to to again the argument against the, the, that that group is that there has been nothing that has benefited as I'm aware historically. Africans in this country that has not had an international or diaspora support to it. Exactly. So even if you're just interested, even if you don't, pers like I used to joke, I'm not a Pan-Africanist because I'm friends with my Gambian neighbor uh, anymore than I wouldn't be a Pan-Africanist if we didn't get along. Um, you know, even, even if I'm just in, out for my own enlightened self-interest, I would want Pan-African support for my reparations. Uh, so I anyway, um, 
Could you say another word or two about how that is all working or how you see that international project working in, in league with one another to support one another uh, uh, in, in these claims? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I participate in a broadcast every Sunday of Africans from all over the diaspora. It comes out of England with uh, uh, or UK, I guess. They don't like me to call it England. Uh, uh, Glenroy Watson, a labor leader there, is a good friend of mine. And we just talk. We talk for an hour about what's going on on all aspects of the continent, the Caribbean, and Europe, uh, Venezuela. The, the fact we talked last week was about Venezuela and the revolution. It is taking place there in one very way. But I learned a lot. I think so you intellectually support your colleagues around the country. You should also, as I told, you know, my students and others, I said all of us should have a, what I call a Pan-African project, that you do something that is international. Um, I do something very, it's, it's small, but I've been overjoyed about it. I buy uh, malaria nets throughout Africa that I pay a little bit each month for that, um, and other things as well. I think on the in terms of the uh, the international movement relative to reparations, I think that we should just be joined up. Um, Eidos is really an isolated group here in the United States uh, that is making headway among those who know little or nothing about Pan-Africanism and the history of it. You know, so they may know about. I ain't going to mention the name, but they may know about a certain sister and a certain brother from L.A., but they don't know about who Sylvester Williams is or George Padmore or people like that. And we need to be teaching them those issues as well as their view of, um, you know, Pan-Africanism. Uh, your friend, uh, Yvette Madison, and I gave a lecture at uh, Harvard, what, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, and we were bombarded afterwards by Ados. I think some of them were bots and stuff like that, but we were just bombarded in the chat room about this stuff. And I mean, and if you're against everything, I mean, that's a nihilistic approach, you know, to so many things. And to dismiss other Pan-Africanists, which they have done very subtly, like Malcolm X and others who have you know or Kwame Ture all of these people I mean it just shows that not only an anti-intellectualism but as far as I'm concerned as a psychologist shows a, a tremendous amount of cultural and self-hate well again my thing was and in, 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 in remains that it's not an issue of not being willing to disagree or engage yeah. in fact quite the opposite in my experience has been similar to what you described there it, it, it's the 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 dogmatic approach that, that they present is hostile uh, and resistant to engagement or discussion. I mean, that was initially what caused my personal break with the two founders was that I was asking them if they would just have a discussion about what it is that they think Pan-Africanism means and what version of Pan-Africanism they're critical of. And all I got was hostility and, 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 and neglect and, and, and worse and, 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 and you know, uh, um, but and some of it's going on in the chat here, and I don't want to engage all of that, and I don't want this to become all about them. In fact, quite right. the opposite. But there is one specific question to something that I, I think I raised uh, a critique of it. 
uh, that I, I'd be interested in, in having you uh, uh, or each of us address, because first of all, I think the question somewhat misrepresents my point, but I would be interested uh, that the Cali House movement exclusively focused on relief for the aging freedmen, so that's not true that our rep- – but, but my point would be – my point isn't that, that a, a, reparative, a reparative project focused specifically on Africans or black people here makes it non-international. What my point would be is that, that uh, the Cali House movement overall was supported by an international struggle of African people resisting enslavement. And as I've learned uh, in reading your work and others about the history of Belinda, also advocating specifically for reparations, exactly. uh, making cases and reference, making arguments referencing other cases that were happening throughout the diaspora. So it's not to say that a reparative project wouldn't be focused specifically on black people here or Africans in Brazil or Africans in Panama or Africans elsewhere, but it would be to say that each one of those efforts is supported and buttressed and made stronger by support of an international movement. Uh, um, Professor no, I, I, no, I agree with that. I mean, you know, that kind of critique, I mean, you know, that's like a, you know, one mile wide and one inch deep critique, I call them, you know, because it's like saying that, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott wasn't an international pan-African movement. I mean, but it, it's in the keeping of struggle that Africans have had throughout the globe. Um, we have struggled in uh, Namibia and South Africa, and I see all of those important for the overall global international struggle of Africans against white oppression. Uh, Sir Hilary Beckles says something that I think is just, I've always quoted in his book, uh, uh, like I forget, Denton's, whatever the name of his book is, I forget the name of it. Yeah, but he said, I thought I had it, I even just had it, I thought I had it right. Black Dead of Britain or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Black yeah. Dead. But he says essentially what African people have been doing in with Cali House, with uh, Patrice Lumumba, with Mandela and Walter Sisulu in South Africa and Tambo, all over the Caribbean, we've been cleaning up white people's mess for 500 years. I mean, that's basically what we've been doing. We've done it with what Cali House did after the Civil War or what Eric Williams did down in Trinidad. We've been cleaning up their mess. And all the reparation struggle says is that it is time for you to pay us for leaving the mess and, and for us just to clean it up. And you expect us to, you know, deal with the stuff that you created. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, um, one of my colleagues, Glenn Robinson and I, uh, we were asked by the government of Tanzania to, uh, to deal with traffic in Tanzania. Well, Glenn is a specialist about traffic. I was unaware that the most fatal accidents that occur in the world are all on the African continent. Mm. And so when we went to Tanzania, I never was so, I mean, I've driven in Africa a lot, but it's interesting that after the British left Tanzania, after the French left places like Senegal, they pulled the plug on everything, traffic lights. So these, the people there just got used to not having traffic, traffic lights and just driving 
and Helter Skelter. So we had to talk. I, I didn't know that. But I think that what we that's another example of cleaning up white people's mess. And I think that's all reparations are dealing with. Uh, the British left illiteracy in the, throughout the Caribbean among us here in this country and among Africans in South America and Bahia and places like that. And we got to do something about it. And they need to, they need, uh, to help us do that. And they owe us to do that. That's it. So again, tactically, uh, for me, again, it's the same thing with everything. I'm not asking any of us again, I happen to be friendly with my Gambian neighbor, but that's not why I'm a Pan-Africanist. If we right. were not friendly, I would still feel the same way, just tactically. Uh, um, and I'm not, ask, I'm not even saying that we need to be friendly, the same way I feel about white folks. I'm not saying that all Africans need to be holding hands and singing kumbaya and acting like we don't have differences or hostilities. I'm simply saying tactically. Uh, I'm sure that even South Africans some of whom I've met that don't have a particular love affair for black Americans do appreciate black America's support for the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, so the same thing would be said in reverse. I don't need you all to love us, I would, but I would appreciate it if you would put a pressure on your leadership to say, give those black folks over there some reparations, and then maybe we can have some conversations about you know, repairing some of the colonial issues that we still deal with on the continent, as one example, and vice versa. Um, <clears throat> what, what about this question? I didn't want to make sure we get to it before we, before we have to leave, but what about this question that, that, uh, 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 particularly the, the, the money form of reparations is, uh, acquiesces to the, 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 to, to the capitalist and imperial system that generates the wealth in the first place? Uh, what, what, how do you, what do you say about that, uh, when you hear that? You know, Jared, this is, as a scholar, this is something that I've wrestled with for many, many years. You know, within the social science, I'm going to answer this in, a, in this way. We have people like Naeem Akbar, Wade Nobles, uh, Linda James Myers, who develop what is now referred to as black psychology. We had Joyce Ladner, the former president of Howard, develop what is called, you know, black sociology. We, um, we have a plethora of people who have developed black history. I've been critical. Now, here's a good internal critique that Africans need to have. We have yet in, among black economists to develop a good black economic theory. The, the black economists that I know tend to say, well, you're going to be capitalists over here. You're going to be Marxist over there, maybe a socialist over there, but we don't have our own theory. And, and so, uh, I mean, you know, I've been doing some study with Julius Nyeri in Tanzania, you know, about 50 years ago and seeing how that's what he was trying to do. Uh, but I've been critical of my black economic economists, brothers and sisters, that's it. Where's our theory about what an African-centered economy looks like? Does it have to be capitalist? Does it have to be socialist? I mean, is it a combination of both of those? I don't know how. What should it look like? And I think they've been remiss. So I agree that I think that, and, and Charles Barron and I talk about this a lot, you know, I agree that there has to be, we, we've got, if, 
you know, you'll hear black folks that way. If you give black folk $350,000, like Robert Johnson said, they're going to make the Cadillac dealer rich the next day. They buying 10 Cadillacs in a house or something like that. You know, we, I think that we tend to believe that the only way reparations can be paid and should be paid is to support a capitalist system. I have one brother say, well, if I, you know, you know, if I got my, I would franchise, get a franchise. I said, what do you mean? I would buy me three or four McDonald's franchises. Well, see, that's pouring back into the system. So I, I want to look at more alternatives to how money, capital, if you want to use that term, and economies in general look like. And I think that's part of the reparations discussion, too. Yeah, it's interesting, and I and I and this is way outside of my lane, but I have to be, I admit I've been looking uh, uh, a lot over the last year, in particular at at uh, uh, modern monetary theory and trying to answer this my own questions about buying power, et cetera. And and the the simple point that I'm 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 learning or I'm getting from their approach is 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 more or less something that a lot of us have been saying in different ways, if I understand it, and I may not, <clears throat> which is that once Nixon took the country off the gold standard, you're just basically making it up, whether it's printing money or a few keystrokes like they did over the summer with the CARES and the HOPE Act and this most late, this last, what, $800 billion for the, for the, for the, for the war machine that they passed while, while everybody's in the streets starving and in lines for food uh you know in in some ways what i'm saying is is that if the reason i keep wanting to focus on the gdp argument is that not you know part of it is is the, the the tactical piece but part of it is also just to say like all of this is some nonsense like we don't have to be fussing with each other over in other words it's not that they're taking our taxes and figuring out like a budget in a household, how do we spend it on this or do we pay this bill or that bill? No, you can do everything. So my point would be that on some level it shouldn't matter if the brother wants to go buy 10 Cadillacs or three McDonald's because, because yes, it's supporting this current economy, but, on, but on, on one level it's what would save this current economy. And then my argument would be once we got to the psychological safety space of I don't have to kill myself to pay a bill or to pay off a loan. Then we can figure out the next step of, well, what new economy do we develop? What new level of, of, of you know, anyway, so I don't know if, if you have no, no, to, I don't know. I'm just, you know. Look, uh, I was on a uh, webinar on Saturday with a young brother, and he said, look, I'm going to tell you what the new economy is going to be. And he's into this, uh, what is it, cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. uh, Bitcoins and Ethereum and all of this. He said that we can control totally. I don't know enough about it. Okay, I'm just admitting it. But he says that this. He said fiat currency is dead. Like you said, when Nixon went off the gold standard, it's dead. And he said it's going to keep on dying, and we need to get into cryptocurrency. And he swears that's going to be the basis of a new. African theory of economics. So that's, that's well, the only reason I, I've heard that too. The only reason I disagree with that is because the people, piece everybody, including me, leaves out in all of this is that everything is backed up by military violence. So 
the idea that, that you can Bitcoin yourself out of colonialism is to me as much mythological as people saying you can buy your way or business your way out of, out of, uh, out of white supremacy. Right. So I don't know if I agree with that. Like, we're still going to need political organization and political power. Anyway, let me take a quick look at the chat. Is there anything, one thing, I, I, one other broad thing, you know, because uh, I know we don't have all day, is, is there anything else in terms of how you see popular discussions of reparations conducted that you would like to address, even if in brief in this conversation? Is there something that we haven't said that you would need us to say or to think about at least going forward? Uh, well, I think that, I mean, this sounds real simple, but for me it's very important. A lot of people who have opinions about reparations know very little about the history of African oppression, and I'm talking about globally. Uh, I'm amazed that I raised like incidents, like I think we're coming up on the anniversary of We Charge Genocide in a couple of days. And I've, I've said that not just to students who are undergraduates, but I've said it to colleagues from, what is We Charge Genocide? I thought that was just an expression. They haven't read the book. And I think that if I could wave a magic wand across Africans across the globe, I would say, look, spend the next year reading books about our struggle. Uh, and I'm talking about his, not just now, but I'm talking about for the past 500 years. I'm doing a, a rereading of uh, Kwame Ture's, uh autobiography, which mm -hmm. is massive, you know, uh, Ready for Revolution. I mean, I'm learning. I, I read it when it came out, but I'm rereading it now, and it's it just so many insights that come out in that book. So a lot of us don't even know about our own struggle, and, and we don't know that, that Patrice Lumumba is, uh, is connected to the CIA, that his death. And I think if we read more about our history, you know, that we would have an understanding, a greater understanding of what reparations are all about and why people are pushing so hard for it and have been pushing hard for it even before Belinda did in 1780. You know, it was fun. I mean, first of all, I can, I can almost reach that Ture autobiography from my seat, which is because I think it's something worthy of referring back to, and it is so thick and filled and rich with, with so much. Now, and I, and, I, and I still struggle to imagine how uh, uh, one credited with, with, with founding the field of black power studies could write a biography about the man that doesn't reference his own autobiography. I mean, I don't know how, how, how cats can do that, but 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 uh, um, but I was looking back at, at the history of Belinda, trying to just get a little bit prepared for today's conversation, and it it is fascinating. I would want you to talk a little bit about her, yeah. given the, the 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 breadth of history, uh, because so she she ends up in the 18th century trying to get reparations for herself. Mm -hmm. The first thought I had that I would want to ask you about here is, wouldn't the or wouldn't part of the response to using her case and cases like hers to get reparations be, but she herself had been enslaved? Right. Professor Winbush, you, Jared Ball, people in the chat, you haven't actually been enslaved. So why should her case be relevant? 
But in the process of answering that, which I don't really know needs an answer, I would be more interested in you just reminding us about who she was and what, what she did. Well, very quickly, uh, Belinda Royale Sutton was captured about 1715 in Ghana. Uh, she talked about the men in her, if you read her petition, she talked about the men who came at night with faces like the moon and stole her and then uh, took her initially, I always forget the name of this island, it's uh, in the Caribbean, and was purchased by this guy named Isaac Royal, uh, with two L's at the end, who also gave the initial funding for the Harvard Law School. In fact, they had a chair there called the Isaac Royal Chair, you know. So when at the outbreak of the Civil War, I'm going to make a long story short, at the outbreak of the Civil War, uh, her so-called master fled from Boston to Canada because he was supporting the British and he got out of the country and she then sued him for 50 years of unpaid labor in 1781. Uh, I say in the book that we don't, you know, she was illiterate. I've actually seen the original petition in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts which, that was written by someone that lived about five miles from her named Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, and or Primus, uh, what's his name? Primus Hall, the son of uh, what's his name? The founder of the AME Church. But Prince anyway, Hall. Yeah. Prince Hall, yeah, Masons. And it, it's an amazing story that she had. You're a funny scholar to remember Primus and not Prince. That's that's funny <laughs> how your memory could work. You'd be so deep in it that you remember the, the harder one and not the easy. Yeah, the easy <laughs> one would have been Prince Hall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but long story short, she uh, won the first year. They gave her approximately $1,500, which in today's money would have been something, I forget, like 20 thousand dollars. They defaulted on the rest of the payments. And I'm in the process now. In fact, I've been running back and forth to Boston uh, trying to locate her grave. Uh, I believe it's located far from... Uh, um, Phyllis Wheatley, who's buried downtown in the same graveyard that uh, Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton are buried in, because she was held in high esteem, believe it or not. So, and it was Antigua, by Antigua, the way. I just thought somebody, it was Antigua. Thank you. Thank you. It was Antigua that she was taken to. So, you know, I, I think that's a, over 240-odd a years ago. And now we're finding there was a woman even before her, Mum Bet, you know, Elizabeth Mum Bet. And um, she was uh, W.B. Du Bois's step-grandmother. She petitioned a year earlier than Belinda. So I'm doing some revision right now of the book, and I'm going to include her in it, in fact. Okay. Um in other words, the, 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 the history for this is, is, is old, and people have been making the argument for a long time, um, because it is in some ways a basically, I mean, it's not that the people themselves are simple, but it's a simple concept. I've been working for free. <laughs> and that's what it is, Jared. I've been working for free. I want to get paid, okay? That's it. That's it. And people say, well, she was enslaved. Look. We've got Native American treaty violations dating back 150 years, but we paid reparations now. So it's not, you know, 
reparations and what enslavement is a crime against humanity. There are no uh, uh, statutes of limitations on crimes against humanity. We have a right to collect. Um, which is even why I admit to at some points being compelled by the argument that starts even with, with, with something as recent as Jim Crow. I mean, if you just even repair from then, it's, it's, it's a steep bill. I mean, it's, so it's, 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 so people could say, well, you weren't enslaved. All right, fine. Start from, I mean, even, I love the clock starting in 1441, but even if you started at 1981, I mean, it would be tremendous, a debt would be tremendous that would have to be paid. Uh, 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 anyway, so, uh, well, uh, so we'll just have to say as we wrap up, unfortunately, this conversation that everything is due and every form is due and uh, uh, everybody that can be down with the, with the argument should get involved and support it. Um, the only, oh, that was the only thing real quick that I would want to say is that when we look at the other cases of reparations being paid, uh, you know, because the Japanese only got like $20,000 check. Yeah, they didn't get a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. And they lost billions of dollars worth of, of land on just on the West Coast. Um, indigenous people, I, I can't imagine whatever they've gotten comes even anywhere close to repairing them, since most of them live on two dollars a day. And then even who's you know, when I when I read, I went back and was looking at Norman Finkelstein's The Holocaust.